Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Common Room Talk. My name's Tony, and I'm your host. So it has been uh, another two weeks since we put an episode out. I did not think that I would be as busy as I was during the Christmas week, and it was just insanely busy. We had so much stuff to do. We had so many things to get ready for. We ended up hosting part of Christmas at our house here, and it ended up being very hectic, very busy, and unfortunately I did not have time to sit down and do an episode, and I am so sorry. And one of the things that I really need to work through is that that is okay, that it is okay to be with family and not worry about doing an episode. I end up just wrestling with feeling like I have failed if I haven't put out an episode for people to listen to. And that's not the right mindset because I don't do this for people. I don't do it for any kind of like glory or glory is not the right word. I'm not doing it for any kind of fame for myself. As I like to share stories about myself and my childhood and what really led to me being so fascinated by the wizarding world, I don't want to make it ever about myself. And sometimes in my head, I feel like if I don't put an episode out, that I'm letting people down, that I'm hurting myself, that I'm hurting the show, that people aren't going to want to listen anymore. And I really need to get over that. And I need to get over myself because it's not about me. And this is never going to be about me. It was good spending time with family. Yes, it was very hectic. It was very I would say stressful for me. I had a headache going on for five days. It was insane to deal with. And it finally started to alleviate the day of Christmas Eve, which was the same day that we were going to have, it seemed like a dozen screaming kids over here, uh, which is great. Like the, the kids being here, my nieces and nephews, it's wonderful. I love having them around, even though it gets very loud and very crazy. But it was a good time, and the holiday was fun. With that, though, being said, I really hope that everyone listening had a wonderful holiday, whatever holiday you were celebrating. For me, obviously, Christmas, celebrating the birth of Christ, and it was great, and I I wouldn't change it for the world. I would have probably changed the weather. The weather itself here in Ohio has been very poopy, and I, I mean that in every sense of the word. It has not snowed. It has barely dropped below freezing unless it's been at like three in the morning. And that really kind of dampened my spirits in regards to the holiday season. I really enjoy snow. Winter is my favorite season. I love being out in the snow. I love playing in the snow. Thankfully, our dog also loves the snow much more than my wife does. So I at least have one person, well, not person, I have one living creature to play in the snow with, that being our dog, Theodora. So I'm really looking forward to that, and I'm really hoping that maybe this weekend, going into the new year, there will be some snow. Last week, we left, not last week, last episode, two weeks ago, we ended up finishing up the chapter of Norbert the Norwegian Ridgeback, and I don't care what anybody says, that is very hard to say five times fast. I'm not going to say it for you because I'm going to fail probably horridly, and I don't want to do that on air. So 
I challenge you guys, if you think you can say it five times fast, have at it. The full name, Norbert, the Norwegian Ridgeback. It is hard to say. But that was a very busy chapter, as we saw a lot of different things happening. Everything from meeting Norbert, to trying to get rid of Norbert, to hearing about Charlie in Romania, to the trio getting into some trouble with Ron having his hand bitten by the dragon, and it obviously being poisonous, so his hand was swelling, trying to lie and say it was a dog bite, Malfoy finding out about everything, Malfoy getting caught in detention, to them ending up also getting caught because for some reason Harry decided to leave his invisibility cloak at the top of the tower where Norbert was taken. We also saw Hagrid kind of being in on it, and it's really weird to me too as I was sitting here thinking about this, is like why Hagrid didn't try and vouch for the kids and if he had vouched for the kids what would it have meant for him like what kind of trouble would he have like have been in we know that Dumbledore to some extent is very much aware of the happenings in and around Hogwarts I would say he probably wasn't completely ignorant to the fact of Hagrid possibly having a dragon we saw that there were duties that were being neglected around the grounds we also know that Dumbledore has been around enough at nighttime to see that Harry has at least visited the Mirror of Erised, and there was no indications that Dumbledore should have known that he was being there, and what I mean by that is there was really nothing out of place for Dumbledore to suspect somebody to be there unless Dumbledore himself is regularly visiting the Mirror, which, as we know, for those of us who have finished the series— um, we have a much better idea of what he sees in that mirror, and it wouldn't be a surprise that he would visit that mirror regularly without trying to go into too much detail there. However, Dumbledore does seem to be very much aware, and throughout the series we end up finding that out about him, that he is very aware of a lot of things that we didn't think that he would probably be aware of. So, what kind of trouble would Hagrid have been in? Would Dumbledore have got him off the hook? I think so. I think it could have been a whole lot better for them had it been talked about. And so we know going into the chapter today, there's a lot to get through. There's a lot that's going to happen. And it all ties into that fact that they were caught. And there's obviously going to be some sort of punishment for what is going to, or for what had happened. And we got the end of the chapter with one of Filch's iconic lines, oh, we are in trouble. And we see that also in the movie, almost exactly the same. Now, before we really get into tonight's chapter, one of the other things I wanted to talk about was on HBO Max, they added the first Harry Potter movie, but the magical movie mode. So it's Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in the magical movie mode. And I started watching it, and it is actually really interesting. Now, some of the stuff that is in the magical movie mode, such as like different trivia, there's questions that you get asked throughout the movie. There's also different knowledge points where they talk about different aspects of whatever is on the screen. They have illustrations of some of the, like, for example, when Harry first got his Nimbus 2000, they had a original drawing of it that popped up on screen and what they wanted it to look like. And it was really interesting to see. And then there were a few things that if you had bought the extended editions or you ever watched any of the bonus features for the movies, you would have seen a lot of 
the things that were being shared by the director, Chris Columbus. And there were also a few things that weren't in there. One of the things I thought were really interesting was about Hagrid. I know we did in one of our earlier episodes where we first met Hagrid, we talked about the fact that there were two Hagrids. There was not so much a stunt double as much as a giant double. And he wore kind of like a Hagrid's face prosthetic over his face in order to at least appear to be Hagrid. But something I thought was really interesting was inside of the shack on the island when Harry and Hagrid first meet, none of the scenes with Harry were actually really being filmed with Robbie Coltrane, the Hagrid actor that we know. It was being filmed in a way that they were reacting to each other's words, but not at the same time in person together because whenever they shot scenes with Robbie Coltrane, again, our smaller actor that we know as Hagrid, they had to put him in a different hut. So there were two different, I said hut, shacks. There were two different shacks that they used. And one was much smaller than the other. And the smaller one was used with Robbie Coltrane in there to make everything else look small and make him look really big. And then in the scenes where we see Harry and the Dursleys, it is the giant actor. I can't remember his name now off the top of my head, and I apologize. He is the one that is interacting with Harry and the Dursleys in order to make them look smaller and make the room in the second shack that they're using look smaller. And so I thought that was really cool. But a lot of the things that they have talked about so far in the movie is really interesting because you would think as being a magical movie, they would want it to be done as magically as possible but something chris columbus was really big on was trying to do things practically and so for example like the letter scene where harry's receiving all of his letters and he's jumping up and down on the table which i have very mixed feelings about and we've already talked about the fact that i can't stand that he's trying to grab them out of the air and not grabbing one off the ground which would have been much easier those were all real letters and that they had actually put some kind of machine into the chimney or attached to the mailbox and it would actually shoot hundreds of these empty like folded pieces of paper that were meant to look like envelopes into the room and it was done practically there was no cgi to it and so that was really cool to hear a lot of those things that we we looked at these things and we just fall in love with them because they're like man this is so cool and so magical and it was really done practically and so it's really cool and a great little um I would say, I don't want to say it's a purposeful nod, but it is a really cool nod at what Mr. Weasley says in later series about how muggles come up with ways to imitate magic without really knowing that they're imitating magic, the way that they come up with ways to to get by. And it is really cool that you kind of get to see that aspect in the way that Chris Columbus was doing this first movie. I would definitely recommend going and watching the magical movie mode. It's definitely worth it. I will tell you, though, if you're wanting to sit down and watch the movie, that is not the way to go because Chris Columbus pops in every now and then talking about the movie, and it is overlaid with the movie. So the movie keeps playing while he keeps talking, and the movie sound gets dimmed while he is talking, and so you do miss out on certain parts. And something that they do, which is really neat, is... If you're not really aware of what the deleted scenes were, it gives you a very good indication with a little port key symbol to show you when a deleted scene is getting ready to be added into the movie. And so I thought that was also really cool to see. I have definitely enjoyed it so far. 
And so with that, we'll get into today's chapter. And that is chapter 15, The Forbidden Forest. And so the chapter starts off saying that things could not have been worse. What had happened exactly? Well, they came down the astronomy tower, as I said earlier. They ran into Filch. They did not have their invisibility cloak. So now Filch is taking them down to Professor McGonagall's study, which was on the first floor. And they're, so they're waiting for her while Filch goes to retrieve her. And Harry is trying to come up with any kind of reason, excuse, alibi for being out of bed this late at night. And he's thinking to himself that it couldn't have gotten any worse, except for the fact that it did. Professor McGonagall came in and she was leading Neville Longbottom. And Neville immediately bursts out, Harry... I was trying to find you to warn you. I heard Malfoy, he was saying that he was going to catch you and that you had a drag, and he gets cut off because Harry's giving him this look that's like, shut up. Like, don't say anymore. However, Professor McGonagall sees this look, and she looked like she was more likely to breathe fire than Norbert the dragon. So she is obviously furious, and we see that as she continues on saying, I would never have believed it of any of you. Mr. Filch says that you were up the astronomy tower. It's one o'clock in the morning. Explain yourselves. And it says that this was the first time that Hermione had ever failed to answer a teacher's question. However, she's kind of relieved of having to answer as Professor McGonagall just immediately starts right back up. I think I have a good idea of what's been going on. It doesn't take a genius to work it out. You fed Draco Malfoy some story about a dragon trying to get him out of bed and into trouble. I've already caught him. I suppose you think it's funny that Longbottom here heard the story and believed it too. So on top of the gut punch of already being caught and Neville being caught, Harry now feels guilty about the fact that what is actually the truth is now being perceived as a lie to just get Malfoy in trouble and therefore get Neville into trouble. And so Neville is going to perceive it as being in trouble for absolutely no legitimate reason, even though there was a real reason. And the real reason is exactly what she had just said, not to get Malfoy in trouble. Malfoy got himself in trouble by being a sneak. But the real story of a dragon it wasn't a lie, yet it is now being perceived as a lie, and now Neville is feeling probably like an idiot, and Harry is feeling guilty now on top of that. And so he was trying to catch Neville's eye to try and tell him without words that that wasn't true, because Neville's standing there, he's looking stunned, and he's looking hurt. And the exact words that it says here, poor blundering Neville, Harry knew what it must have cost him to try and find them in the dark to warn them. However, Professor McGonagall was not finished. She continues with saying, I'm disgusted. Four students out of bed in one night. I've never heard of such a thing before. And I laugh at that because those of us who know the story, we know of another time where four students were consistently out of bed and technically if you add in their little sneak there's five but she says i've never heard of such a thing before you miss granger i thought you had more sense and as for you mr potter i thought gryffindor meant more to you than this 
All three of you will be receiving detentions. Yes, you too, Mr. Longbottom. Nothing gives you the right to walk around the school at night, especially these days. It's very dangerous, and 50 points will be taken from Gryffindor. So if you stop there, you think, well, that's not so bad. 50 points, that's okay. Like, they could recover from this, right? No. Harry gasped. 50 they would lose the lead that they had just won in the last Quidditch match. And so this, again, points out to something that for the longest time I was confused on. And I, know I, I talked on this once before, and I have no idea what I just said when I try to say I don't know. I think that's what I was trying to say. However, enjoy my little mumble mouth right there. But I have talked about this before, how I was confused about if the Quidditch points also went into the house points, and they do. We see that very clearly here, that the points that are won in Quidditch also go into the house points for the house cup. And I don't know, I guess, the layout exactly of how that would work if, I guess you, you technically could win the house cup, but not win the Quidditch cup. That is possible. And I really like that aspect of it's not just merely academic, but is also extracurricular in the sense of you can also do things outside of your classes to earn points and we do see in the sense of them taking down the troll that it doesn't have to be academic and it doesn't have to be i don't want to say extracurricular in this part but it doesn't have to be in quidditch they went and did something outside of class outside of quidditch they saved hermione's life and ended up earning points that way as well. And so the point system I really like because it is more than just academics. It's more than just sports related. It's really anything that I think the teachers see fit to give points for. However, we do see a very good example here that there are more things tied into the house cup than just the academic side of things. But Professor McGonagall continues on and says 50 points each and she was breathing very heavily through her long, pointed nose. Harry says, Professor, please, you can't. And she instantly retaliates. Don't tell me what I can and can't do, Potter. Now get back to bed, all of you. I've never been more ashamed of Gryffindor students. So just like that, they're down 150 points. And that puts Gryffindor in last place in one night. They had ruined any chance that Gryffindor had for the House Cup. And so Harry is feeling as though the bottom of his stomach has just dropped out. How could they ever make up for this? So we see that going on from here, they're in the Gryffindor dormitories, and Harry is just not sleeping well. He hears Neville sobbing into his pillow for what seemed like hours. Harry couldn't think of anything to say to him. And what was going to happen in the morning when the rest of Gryffindor found out? And so... We then fast forward to the next morning. The Gryffindors are passing the giant hourglasses that recorded the house points, and they thought that something was wrong. There must have been a mistake. How could they have suddenly dropped 150 points since last night? And then this next part, which I think is... I'm very curious about this. It says, and then the story started to spread. Harry Potter, the famous Harry Potter, the hero of two Quidditch matches had lost all of those points, him and a couple of other stupid first years. So I'm wondering who would have let this story leak. 
it could have been Malfoy, but then he also risks the fact that he was out of bed and getting caught. And I don't know if he would do that. I don't know what length he would go to if he would make himself look bad willingly. And I just don't see him doing that. Or could one of the Gryffindor students have asked Professor McGonagall what happened and would she have said? And I think that would be more likely to happen. I think that Professor McGonagall just showed that she is not worried about trying to make Gryffindor just look good. She is all about making an example and making her point known. And so I could definitely see her saying that it would have been some first years. I don't know about specifically calling a student like Harry out. Maybe Neville let something slip. He obviously was very upset and could have still looked upset in the morning and somebody could have asked him about it. And we know that it's probably not very hard to get information out of him. So one way or another, the story got out that Harry Potter and a couple of other stupid first years, that's what the the book says, not me, I'm not saying that, had been the ones to lose them all of their points. And so Harry goes from being the most popular and admired people in school and was now one of the most hated. And we see that even the Ravenclaws and Hufflepuffs had turned on him because they were wanting to see Slytherin finally lose the House Cup. And now everywhere that Harry is going... When he would run into Slytherins, they would congratulate him and thank him for helping them out with taking the lead over again and really basically ensuring that they win the House Cup again. However, Ron still stood with Harry as a good friend should, and he actually says to him, they'll forget about this in a few weeks. Fred and George have lost loads of points in all the time that they have been here, and people still like them. However, Harry says that they've never lost 150 points in one go, though, have they? And Ron says no. And I think that this next part is very instructive. It is a very good, teachable moment. We see that... Harry goes to Oliver Wood to resign, to give up his post on the Quidditch team. And Wood doesn't let him. He says, what good will it do? How are we going to win any of those points back if we don't have you here on the team? And it says, but even Quidditch had lost its fun. And the rest of the team wouldn't speak to Harry during practice. And if they had to speak to him, they called him the seeker. And what I want to say about this being a teachable moment is this is what guilt and shame does to you. It it makes you feel this way. And it's not a bad thing. These are the kind of situations that you grow as a human. These are the kind of situations that you face and you have to make a decision Are you going to continue on and do better or are you going to just roll over and let it defeat you? And something that he says, he being Harry right before all of this to himself in his head, this is what he's saying. But Harry swore to himself not to meddle in things that were not his business from now on. And even right before that, it was a bit late to repair the damage, but and then it goes into him making that that vow to himself. We see that he is making the choice to step up. He wants to own this. He wants to go and resign. He wants to to not be, I don't want to say rewarded by playing Quidditch. He knows that he messed up and he, he wants to feel the severity of it. And I think he does feel the severity of it. And it's a teachable moment because every single person that has ever lived has messed up at some point or another. 
every single person has faced this situation and has had to make this choice. Am I going to continue on and do the right thing? Or am I going to let this defeat me and I'm going to just kind of wallow in self-pity and let this be the dictation of my life and just be a pretty poopy person from here on out? And we see that Harry takes the higher road, as I would really hope that most people would. But we see that guilt and shame in its proper aspect is a very teachable thing because we know what we need to do when we mess up in order to not mess up again. And I think this is a really valuable portion of this story where we really get to see a very human aspect to Harry here. Now, before we continue in the story, I do want to point out the small picture that is in the center of this page of the Gryffindor hourglass. And it is just a really small, ornate-looking hourglass. It has the typical hourglass figure where the glass is with the scarlet color of Gryffindor for the sand. And we see a lot of portions in the top and a lot of portions in the bottom. And it's sitting in an inlet in the wall. So you can see the brick wall kind of built almost in a half oval form, except for the very bottom, which is flat, which is a shelf that the hourglass itself is sitting on. And surrounding the hourglass on both sides are these very long golden paws and legs of a lion. And when you come up to the top of the hourglass, you actually get the head of the lion looking to the left, and you have these curls, which is like the mane for the lion, all of its hair there on the mane. And you see its mouth is open and its tongue is sticking out, not unlike a dog's tongue when it is panting. And that's what it looks like. It looks like it is panting. But it is a really cool little depiction of the lion and what's really cool is at the bottom underneath the shelf the same color as the wall you see this long tail come down and curl into the middle with the little bush of hair that is at the end of the lion's tail and it looks like the longer you look at it the lion itself is going from stone to gold and it could almost be alive like it could be popping out of the wall like it's going through a transformation and it's really cool it's a really cool little picture to see here now back to the story we see that both Hermione and Neville were suffering but because they are not as well known as Harry it wasn't as severe but nobody was really speaking to them and Hermione completely stopped answering questions in class because she didn't want to draw attention to herself anymore and now Harry is glad that the exams weren't that far away he was using studying and revision to take his mind off of everything that had happened. However, a week before the exams were to start, Harry is going to be tested. He His resolution to not do anything wrong, to, to not really put, as Miss Weasley puts it, put another toe out of line, his resolution to not do these things is really put to the test by something really unexpected. So he was walking back from the library on his own, and he had overheard somebody whimpering from a classroom just ahead of him. So he goes a step nearer the room, and he hears Quirrell's voice, and he says, no, no, not again, please. And it sounded as though that someone was threatening him, so Harry moves closer. All right, all right, he heard Quirrell sob. Next second, Quirrell came hurrying out of the classroom, and he was straightening his turban, and so he, he looks really pale, 
and he looks like he was about to cry, and he rushes past Harry, probably doesn't even really notice him. Harry then peers into the classroom. It was empty, but there was a door that stood ajar on the other end, and Harry was almost halfway towards it before he remembers and thinks to himself that he had promised himself that he would not do any more meddling, that he wouldn't get into any more mischief or trouble. All the same, though, he would have gambled 12 sorcerer's stones that Snape had just left the room. And from what he had just heard, he was banking on that Snape would be walking with a new spring in his step because it seems that Quirrell has finally given in. So Harry rushes back to the library where Hermione and Ron were studying, and he tells them everything. So Ron says Snape's done it then. If Quarles told him how to break his anti-dark force spell, and then Hermione interrupts him, well, they're still fluffy though, so I don't think we need to worry. And Ron then interjects, maybe Snape's found out how to get past him without asking Hagrid. I bet that there's a book somewhere in here telling you how to get past a giant three-headed dog. So what do we do, Harry? And we see that... Ron is excited. He's ready to adventure again, and he even says that the sense of adventure was twinkling here in his eyes. But Hermione answered before Harry could. She says, we need to go to Dumbledore. That's what we should have done ages ago. If we try anything ourselves, we'll be thrown out for sure. But Harry says, we don't have any proof. Quarrel's too scared to back us up. Snape's only got to say that he doesn't know how the troll got into the school on Halloween, in that he was nowhere near the third floor. Who do you think they're going to believe, him or us? It's not exactly a secret that we hate him. Dumbledore will think that we made it up to get him sacked. Filch wouldn't help us if his life depended on it. He's too friendly with Snape, and the more students who get thrown out, the better, and that's what he thinks. Don't forget, we're not supposed to know about the stone or Fluffy. There's a lot of explaining that all of that will take. And so Hermione looks convinced, but Ron doesn't. Ron says... If we just do a bit of poking around, and Harry says no, very flatly, we've done enough poking around. He pulled a map of Jupiter towards him, and he started to learn the names of its moons. And then we go to the next morning. The following morning, notes were delivered to Harry, Hermione, and Neville at the breakfast table, and they were all the same. Your detention will take place at 11 o'clock tonight. Meet Mr. Filch in the entrance hall, Professor M. McGonagall. Because, you know, the best way to teach students a lesson of being out of bed at nighttime is to give them a detention where they're out of bed at nighttime. Really makes zero sense. However, on the left-hand page, we get a really gorgeous portrait of Professor Minerva McGonagall. And it is what looks like a very proper portrait like oil painting that you would see almost in the renaissance festival renaissance festival the renaissance era it is professor mcgonagall sitting here she's very just stiff is the way that i want to say it she's sitting very proper upright her head's up faced forward in the direction that she is looking which is to the right not directly at you but to the right and she's wearing which is very weird, a very emerald green pair of dress robes, which is very out of character. Again, we've talked about this before, but she's wearing these green robes and not anything that is Gryffindor colored. And she's sitting here, it looks like maybe at a desk or a table, 
we don't really get to see it because the backdrop itself is just black and then the very bottom of the page, and I'm talking maybe a quarter of an inch of the page along the entire bottom is red and looks like it would be a desk. Her hands and arms are resting on this desk and resting on a book and on her left hand is a toad that is sitting there and I'm going to try and find this really quick, but there was something that I read or I listened to, I think, when I listened to A History of Magic that talked about Jim Kay. It was Jim Kay talking about why he added in this toad, and I want to see if I can find it really quick. So it took some digging, but I found it. It's not actually in the book, Harry Potter, A History of Magic. That book itself has a little bit less than what the audiobook does. The audiobook goes through that book itself specifically, but there are interviews in it that are not in the book itself. And so I would highly recommend going and listening to Harry Potter of History of Magic on Audible. It is narrated by Natalie Dormer. But in regards to the portrait of Professor McGonagall, we see Jim Kay doing an interview about the portrait itself and what he's talking about in here as to why he included the frog it was actually about metamorphosis. And he says that the picture itself contained a lot more about frogs. So he, which I've talked about this before, he really enjoys frogs. It's his favorite creature. He just, as he says, he's mad about them. He loves them. And so this portrait included a lot more frogginess before he toned it back. There was a lot more to it. And the frog sitting on Professor McGonagall's hand is to represent the metamorphosis, the changing from a tadpole to a frog. And it was a good representation, he thought, of transfiguration, changing one thing to another. And he thought that it probably would have been something that would have been a cool thing to have around in regards to teaching transfiguration and just the key components or the primary characteristics of what transformation and transfiguration would be through teaching metamorphosis. And I think it's a really cool analogy or interpretation of it. But to finish up talking about the portrait, again, we see Professor McGonagall looking to her, it would be her left, but as we're looking at it to her right, and she has this this very long nose, not as long as Dumbledore's, but it's still a long nose, and her thin spectacles are sitting about halfway down the bridge of her nose. She's actually looking over the top of her glasses. I would think this would probably be almost like a stern, severe look that she would give somebody. And her hair is pulled back into a very tight, neat bun, which is very much what we see in the movies as she is portrayed by Maggie Smith. And I think that Professor McGonagall's character in the movies is by far one of my favorite depictions of a character from the books to the movies. I think that Maggie Smith did an absolutely amazing job of portraying Professor McGonagall. So back to our letter from Professor McGonagall to Harry, Hermione, and Neville about their detention at 11 o'clock at night where they're going to meet Mr. Filch in the entrance hall because, again, and I can't emphasize this enough, apparently... The best way to teach kids to not be out of bed at night is to give them a detention where they're out of bed at night. So it says that Harry had forgotten about the detentions, 
And he kind of expected Hermione to complain, but also wasn't surprised that she didn't because she, like Harry, felt that they had deserved the detention for what they did. Again, taking the higher road, he knows that he messed up. He knows that he did wrong. Even though he was still trying to do right, he knew that he was breaking rules by doing what he was doing and therefore knew that he was guilty and deserving of the punishment that he had got, even though at any point in time, Hagrid could have stepped up and said, no, I had them do this. This was actually all my fault. And again, having a teacher's, well, he's not a teacher. Having a staff's permission to be out of bed, I think would alleviate some of the issues here. Yet that is not brought up in any way, shape or form. I also don't know what kind of authority Hagrid has at Hogwarts at this point. But again, he is on the good side of Dumbledore, and Dumbledore has all of the authority, and it's just a whole mess of stuff going on in there. But at 11 o'clock, Hermione and Harry said goodbye to Ron in the common room, and they went down with Neville, where Filch was already waiting for them, and so was Malfoy. And so Harry had also forgotten that Malfoy had got a detention too. Filch says, follow me. He lights up his lamp, and he starts leading them outside, and this is what he says. I bet you'll think twice about breaking school rules again, won't you? Oh yes, hard work and pain are the best teachers if you ask me. It's just a pity that they let the old punishments die out. Hang them by your wrists from the ceiling for a few days. I've got the chains still in my office. I keep them well oiled in case they're ever needed. Right, off we go. And don't think about running off now. It'll be worse for you if you do. So we really get to see our first like full-on interaction here with Filch. We really get to see a lot of his character in the words that he just said. He really doesn't care much for students. We saw what Harry said just a page back in the more students that would get kicked out, the better, which is what Filch would think. And here we see that he would love to actually punish the students in very cruel, mean, terrible ways. And so we get a very good measure of his character. And going back to our Harry Potter, A Journey Through a History of Magic book, there is a page here that is dedicated to Filch. And I'm not going to read all of the stuff on here because it does give away a few plot twists and holes and just fun stuff in the second book. But we see here that it says, Argus Filch, the caretaker at Hogwarts, often came close to discovering Harry Potter on his nighttime adventures around the school. Filch was the Hogwarts caretaker, a bad-tempered, fail wizard who waged a constant war against the students. And then there's this hand-drawn picture here by J.K. Rowling, actually, that is, it, it looks very, I want to say almost Looney Tunes. And I don't mean Looney Tunes in like the newer cartoon-ish versions of them, but like old school Bugs Bunny kind of look. It, he looks almost like um, a lab assistant, like an old bald lab assistant with hair coming out of his ears. He had a very wrinkly forehead, a very long nose, very big long eyes and you probably just heard my dog flap her head around 
he is standing here again it looks like a very long lab coat he's holding a key ring and a lantern in his other hand with black boots and you can tell just in this picture he looks old he looks miserable he does not look happy he looks like the kind of person who would absolutely be waging a war against students so harry hermione neville and malfoy are following filch out onto the grounds and it says that they're marching across the dark grounds neville keeps sniffling to himself harry wondered what their punishment was going to be and he thinks it has to be something horrible or filch just wouldn't be sounding so delighted he's ecstatic he's happy about what is about to happen with them and they hear a voice is that you filch hurry up i want to get started and it says immediately that Harry's heart rose. If they were going to be working with Hagrid, it wouldn't be so bad. They were making their way over to Hagrid's hut, and Harry could see that the, the windows themselves were lit up, and that's when they heard that distant shout of Hagrid calling out. And Harry's relief really must have showed on his face because Filch saw it and says, I suppose that you think you're going to be enjoying yourself with that oaf? Well, think again, boy. It's into the forest you're going, and I'm much mistaken if you'll come out in one piece. At this, Neville lets out a small little moan, and Malfoy stopped dead in his tracks, and he says, The forest? And he didn't sound as cool as he usually does. He says, we can't go in there at night. There are all sorts of things in there. Werewolves. And it says that Neville clutched Harry's sleeves and his robes and was making a choking noise. That's your lookout, isn't it, said Filch, his voice cracking with glee. Should have thought about them werewolves before you got into trouble. And before we finish, because we're going to finish today's episode right there, not the whole episode, just the chapter. We're going to finish the chapter there and save the rest for next week because I think there's a lot that's going to be happening in the next few pages. It's going to give us a lot to talk about. There is a really cool portrait here on the left-hand side. This is a picture of what looks to be one of the entrances and exits to Hogwarts. I don't know if this is the main door going in and out because it looks like there might be a lot of tangled roots and stuff around the archway of the door but we do see it's a very dark picture and it looks like maybe the castle wall is just completely overgrown with very thick roots except for two small little circular windows that have the curtains drawn in such a way that it looks as if there are potentially eye slits in these circular windows and they are sitting in the top left and top right of the area not the picture itself but just above the archway where the door is and it looks as if it could be a face and that the the archway itself is just a massive vertical mouth and one door the left door itself is shut but the right door is cracked open just a bit that you see light kind of flooding out and at the very bottom, sitting in the doorway, is what looks like an adorable little cat, which I'm guessing is supposed to be Mrs. Norris. And she's just sitting there inquisitively looking out. And if you look close enough in the dark 
corners of the picture, you can see a few more windows here and there. But I don't think that this is one of the main entrances in, given the fact that it is covered in the roots and it looks like maybe, I don't want to say dead vegetation, I think it just looks that way because it's dark and at nighttime. But it does give you a very ominous feeling about what is getting ready to happen. And with that, we will end today's episode. And if you guys are listening, thank you so much for listening. If you guys are new listeners, thank you at least for getting through this episode. I I do encourage you to go back and listen to the first 21 episodes. It's crazy that we're into the 20s now. It doesn't seem like we've done that many episodes. However, thank you guys so much for listening. If you are liking what you're hearing, please go and like it subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. If you're able to leave a written review, that would be wonderful as well. If you guys want to bring up any talking points to me, or if I misspoke on anything and you want to correct me, please email me commonroomtalk at gmail.com. I would love to talk with any of you. If there's anything you want to bring up, we can talk about it on an episode here. We can put it in here, talk about it live on air. I would gladly speak with you guys. So again, thank you so much for listening. My name's Tony. I'm your host, and this is Common Room Talk.